Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by Sastrify. Sastrify is the agile SaaS buying and management solution for progressive tech companies to help you to consolidate all SaaS procurement in a single platform and reduce your SaaS spendings in terms of time and money significantly. Sastrify's procurement experts negotiate with your SaaS vendors, such as Google, Miro, Asana, or Salesforce, to get the best possible price for existing and new contracts, as well as for upcoming renewals. My company, OMR, is a customer of Sastrify, and we were able to save a lot of time normally spent on SaaS negotiations and reduce our software spendings dramatically. They have a large base of satisfied customers, such as Gorillas, Runtastic, and Westwing. Their promise is savings guaranteed. Sastrify saves you more money than it costs. You can get a free analysis of your SaaS tools now. Just visit sastrify.com slash alphalist and benefit from a special 50% discount for Alphalist podcast listeners for the first three months. So, welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today I have a man with a very complicated name. His name is <laughs> Nilo Samanen. Is that, was that correct, well, Nilo? Well done. Samanen, but almost Samanen. correct. Samanen. <laughs> <laughs> well and he is the VP Engineering of Volt. And Volt is a crazy company that, I don't know, a few people might have on the radar for a while. Um, I think Vault launched like last year, somewhere last year in Berlin. And I, it somehow got to my attention through like people working in uh, competing companies. And uh, now like Vault delivers my food um, at home. So most likely I will order a pizza tonight uh, or a few pizzas uh, because I have visitors uh, through Vault. And it's kind of magic. Um, because it just feels a bit different and a bit better. So the user experience is much better. And they almost got a billion in funding, as far as I know. And um, they are in the acquisition process uh, with DoorDash, as far as I know. Nilo, did I forget anything? No, I think, I think you're, you're pretty much on the point there, yes. I, I like the fact that you mentioned that we tried to do it better. That's what we tried to be, better. <laughs> In product, in, in, in engineering, in efficiencies. That's kind of the aim of the company. And that's also the aim of our talk today. So uh, we want to talk about effective and impactful tech organizations today um, because uh, Nilo seems to have some experience with that. Um, but maybe we just start off with my first, like always first and famous question. What is your, your nerd path? I mean, how did you get where you are how did you get into engineering and when? 
<laughs> yeah, my, my nerd why? path. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> why is always good. My nerd path starts actually quite, quite, quite early. When I, it depends on what's early. I think it was. I think I was like 14 when I made my first commercial website back in the day in like 1996, 1997. Uh, I, w- I was uh, still in high school and I realized that this web stuff is cool back in the day with Windows 95. And I built my first commercial website. Then I built, built a few of them. Uh, but but then I actually kind of, that was when I first started thinking about like, the internet technologies as a cool thing to work on. But uh, then I took a little bit of a side path and uh, became a radio host for a while. So I went into radio host and audio productions and, and kind of uh, doing DJing until I realized there's no money and no be- no kind of career prospects in this really. So I went back to my earlier love, which is engineering after this stint in journalism. I, I studied engineering for a while. I started my own company, I think, year two of, of, of studying engineering. Also taught in the polytechnic where I was back in the day uh, of because there was a lack of people who actually knew how to build uh, internet-related products. Uh, but yeah, I mean, from that point onwards, I think what my my love for tech actually isn't really about engineering. It's about two things. It's about uh, building the best uh, best best things for co- consumers or for customers. So how do we create customer value through technology? That's the thing I've been caring about quite a lot, especially with through kind of this craft excellence. So how can you create something that is bo- at the both times as a creation, beautiful and useful for the for the end customers? And this has been kind of my journey ever since from uh, from those early days. So I, I used to build kind of these rich interaction applications on the web and used to build games and a, a physics engine and some random things along the way. I used to also actually run design and engineering in the previous companies. I've always been between these this customers or humans and technology uh, as a personal nerd. So my nerd nerdism is more related to the uh, humane engineering aspects of this. I've built some crappy backends, some glorious frontends and ended up here. I don't need you want to know more about the career or more philosophy as- aspects of this. This is how I would answer. Okay, um, like I, I'd be like first curious. I mean, Vault is mostly an app company, one could say, right? Um, like the most of the user experience happens in the app. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the kind of apps are the flagship of 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 the company. Yes, yes, you could say that. And- and I guess you have then different apps, like one for the consumer, one for the restaurant, um, and so on. And I'm always like curious to like at least briefly understand your tech stack. Um, what is it built with? Sure. So, so I mean, our kind of consumer apps are, are native. Uh, I think in general you should always go native if you have the engineers and you're building something very consumer centric. So. Uh, so native Swift and native Kotlin for Android and iOS clients for the consumer side. For the courier application, we built it with React Native as a cross-platform solution. We built it with React Native, I think, for the last six years from its first inception onwards. And for merchants, we have an iPad application. And then we do some some cool cross-platform projects with Kotlin as well on the newer kind of business line stuff. So some retail picker ap- applications and, and maybe some more kind of warehouse management stuff as well built with Flutter. So quite a wide range of mobile technologies in that. And and the backend? Ah, yeah. For back- <laughs> yeah, so for backend, we, 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 we have the classic founder Python, which we which is maybe like 30, 40% of Vault. We use Scala for our logistics, uh, logistics and courier platform side, and then we use Kotlin for most of the new services we build. So we have three major backend languages at the moment in use. There's some Rust in a small microservice there, and uh, and some Golang in uh, in some marketing technologies, but uh, mostly it's these three. 
these three. And uh, and how how big is your 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 engineering org? So engineering these days is about three hundred and fifty people in engineering involved across five different countries where we have product and engineering people located. And uh, does that mean that you, because you have like different technologies, different tech stacks, and so on, do you apply the the popular um, Spotify model that uh, Spotify once kicked off, and uh, I don't know if they actually use it, or like how do you drive your your organization? Well, I think it's maybe <laughs> like a bit of a modified, or I don't know, evolved Spotify model. But how we how we do do our technical organization is really kind of end to end teams with autonomy, uh, accountability, and ownership of, of their customers. And they're always put uh, kind of aligned towards a business goal or a customer group. So the whole idea is that the organization also reporting lines and everything else should be optimized for, for the biggest impact you're trying to get out of things. So as an example, a, a courier delivery experience team is building what is a courier's daily life and how, how do couriers really kind of, what is a good, good life and a good, good kind of working relationship for a courier and how are they efficient in finding their addresses and, the, and taking the food and kind of doing their, doing their work. And that is kind of a, a team and that team is end-to-end capable from back-end to front-end to design to analytics to whatever is needed to be able to run those things. So, so that's in a, in a nutshell. And, and, and do they also own the business? So I mean, the, the business is, is kind of split in a way. So Walt, Walt works in a very kind of distributed distributed way, in, in in kind of a distributed way, so that the team on the product side will, will own like there's a product lead and a team lead, and they kind of own the on the product side of it. But on on kind of operational side, we have 23 countries we're operating in, and each country is unique, and it, and this business is very local, very city by city, very country by country. So there are different requirements in this in these different parts. So what we try to do in kind of product and engineering is we build this platform. So we go platform first almost always. So we try to build the tooling and this platform that enables the countries and the operations to actually, so basically the business to solve their problems. So we try to get as efficient as possible ways for them to solve their problems. But we give them a lot of leeway in solving them differently because I don't know, they are, the logistics in Budapest is different than it is in, in Helsinki. Or, or the kind of the needs of the of the merchants in in Greece are very different than they are from uh, from Tokyo or Japan in general. So we try to give them a pretty wide wide ranging platform around it. So so there's not a so, direct mapping with business and and product because because there's uh, many stakeholders on the on the business side basically. So business is a user of your your platform then, um, and like just as an example, how does it look like for a city like Hamburg? I mean. We have, I think, two million, almost two million people living here. How big is the team? If you can give like for Hamburg, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we don't have a city-specific teams. So I mean, from operational perspective or from a from a tech perspective. Well, from operational perspective. So uh, we do a kind of uh, we do a country teams. So country country has a team that can okay. handle different. We don't need to have a city-specific team. So typically, we have country-specific teams. So the Germany team is based in Berlin mostly. And um, if you, as a Berlin-based team, have requirements to product, like how does that work? Yeah, if so you, I mean, wanna... yeah, so it depends a bit on the operational area. So it's the same as we have the teams based on domains. So, so for example, in this career delivery experience uh, example, uh, we have operations managers in the countries who are kind of understanding the local kind of needs of the of the fleets and what what, are, what is happening in the logistics uh, sphere of this area. And that we have a kind of regular feedback from one-on-one with this, but we also have these operational manager calls where we have a really tight coupling with the product and, and operational side to understand uh, the potential from the product side and the needs from the operational side. 
on top of the typical road mapping and other things. But in general, I think the whole point of this model, what we're trying to do is have, put the context really close to the teams. So we try to do this very regular, I think we have a bi-weekly catch-up in this regard, where we align the kind of operational expectations of the of the kind of courier operations and the actual teams themselves. So, so the model that is really means... working on a lot of, a lot of discussions together. I, I can't imagine. I mean, it, it must be like then um, a huge group of people and... Um, I guess like 50 people in each country or how does it look like for, for Germany, for example? Well, it depends on the size of the country. It can be anything from 50 to 50 to hundreds, depending on the country operations. Okay. And um, then like jumping back to tech, um, how do you drive product then? Um, I mean, do you have a product manager in each of the teams or do you have like one big visionary who sets the direction of how, how does that work? We have a mixture of both. We have we have loud visionaries in the company as well. But mostly we try to do it so that every team has always a product lead uh, or pro product manager. We call them product leads and a team lead. So we have an engineering and tech and product counterpart to in teams. Each of those teams uh kind of, as they said, own the domain. And the product is the one that, who kind of understands the business, understands the customers, tries to bring the context to the team to kind of be, be that kind of a leader and, and glue between all these competencies and all these kind of requirements inside. So, I mean, like, you don't have a direct, direct relationship having like 50 people shouting to an engineering team what they should be building. There is some, some buffer and there's some processes around prioritization. And we do bi-annual uh, bi roadmapping. So typically try to do like uh, half a year roadmaps with different tiers of uh, features based on impact estimations and in input from the operations or in general from and, everywhere else. And and do you personally work with like every team on on formulating the roadmap or how does that we work or how do how do the teams do that? Do they do it on their own or well we have uh, <laughs> we have 40 maybe 44 teams at this point. So I don't personally work with every team to figure out. So we actually give the teams quite a lot of leeway. So we have, if you think of this more goal setting framework kind of uh, kind of way, we look at, we have a company level goals that are then tied into, into kind of areas. So basically there's like five or six company level goals that are then kind of matched by group or team specific uh, roadmaps and the teams themselves do the roadmaps. So they have the input from the operations, they have the input from data, data input from user research, inputs from intuition, kind of whatever is needed, and they formulate based on that and a best estimate of what, is the, what are the biggest impact projects to be done. And then we, then we kind of hash, hash that out with our counterparts and, and debate, as you always do in these things quite a lot, because prioritization is one of the hardest things to get right. But we do give, like, the important thing is, I think we do give a lot of leeway for the team to really understand, like, because they should be understanding the context of their customers really well. So then they, they are the ones who are finalizing their roadmaps. We do a lot of input. We debate a lot. We challenge a lot. But in the end, the team owns their roadmap. And if you don't own your roadmap, it's kind of hard to be committed to it. So you need to be able to be, kind of influence it in the same way. Okay. So that means you sit down, like as a leadership group, like the six founders, you and maybe like a few others sit down once per year to discuss the yearly goals and then teams look at the yearly goals um, and you communicate them and then they say, okay, yeah, in this quarter, I want to do this or in this half year, I want to do this and this and this. And uh, then they execute against the company goals, like, in, 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 like similar to like uh, an OKR model, right? 
it's kind of like a very loose OKR model. So we don't like, 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 like we're not kind of tied into like having strict OKRs for everything, but the company level goals are roughly OKRs. I think the one thing to important to note is that we do this half a yearly roadmap. So we do this kind of six, six month roadmap. We, we, we tier them to tier zero, tier one, tier two, tier three, maybe tier four, exactly because the world changes faster than the roadmaps can. So we try to balance the fact that kind of how much do you want to do planning and how much do you want to do execution? So we try to kind of have the overhead of planning to be like roughly every half a year because along the way we change the priorities. So there are differences change. For example, last year, uh, we were just finished or pretty much finishing our road mapping for, the, for H2 when we realized that from business and from competitors and from wherever where we kind of made this kind of analysis of what, what we need to do really is to build a subscription model for Bolt. And then we, then we, and this came kind of a bit, bit much from the kind of higher ups in the in the leadership side of like, hey, we need to really build this. We re-geared six teams to focus on it, basically repurposed roadmaps for this. Uh, had some one team lead it, had six teams contributing, and built one in three months. And this kind of ability to execute fast and 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 be very reactive to market changes and and potential to what we need to build is something I think is kind of at the key of, at the heart of what. What makes our model efficient? So when the teams are really owning their own topics, when when you work on this, you're not kind of you're not kind of tying yourself into the fact that you were promised to exactly ship these six things in these six months. But it's more about you own these topics. There's a more important thing. You can change your way, and I think it works pretty well for us. So building an in, in, environment where it's, there's resiliency and capability to react within the organization to the changes in the world. It's a, operating at the edge of chaos is another way of putting it, but uh, we like it. Chaos and impact. It's a good combo. <laughs> it sounds as if you're not dogmatic about anything. Um, is that correct? Or you try to be not dogmatic about anything? We're dogmatic about culture. Kind of like, like the, the kind of the way we approach things. We're very dogmatic. How do we do ownership? How, what do we expect from people when they join this company? What do we expect from ownership? Like what do we expect from this entrepreneurial mindset and this idea that there are no other people's problems? You have an issue to solve, you solve it, or you find the people you need to solve it, and you move forward. Instead of waiting for somebody else to remove your blockers, you remove your blockers yourself. It's a very kind of cultural approach in, into building things. I also believe it's a really great approach for talented individuals. So if you're, you know, if you're really good at what you do, you typically want to have the power to do the things you need to do to get to where you need to go. And our model is, model's whole point is to basically empower these smart and capable people and try to reduce the overhead of, for example, kind of command and control change or this communication change and just try to have, have the power with the people who can solve the problems. Okay. So first try it yourself, then like include everyone you need to include uh, and, and, and drive change, right? Um, instead of waiting for others to, to drive change. Yeah. And then there's a big, big kind of like, like maybe kind of to step back. So there is a lot of structure around this as well, of course. So we have the, how do we do the teams and how do the teams really operate? There's a bunch of kind of codification and playbooks around that topic. But it all comes down to the fact that we want the teams to take the ownership of their own areas. So it's not, it's not like we're chaotic in, in a sense of just, just randomly doing things, but it's more like we don't we try to optimize for the right output rather than for, for a predictability of things. And you try to limit synchronization in a way um, or and context switching? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, like minimizing dependencies is the other side of, of this sort of uh, work, which I'm, I'm personally very passionate about. So like, if you have the end-to-end -end capability in a team, one of the main reasons for that is that you don't have to do handovers of work. Everybody can contribute to every code base. 
uh, every code base has designated owners who a typical model where everybody will kind of uh, like certain people will review the code so you have the uh, kind of accountability and maintenance part of, of things still in place but the teams can really move as fast as they need to preferably building the team size uh, kind of uh, services themselves as well so that they could own own their own services but as companies evolve that's typically more a long-term dream rather than an everyday reality in a growth company and, and how big are your teams so teams are like ideally typically between five and seven people, the typical two pizza team kind of thing. We start teams typically with three people. So the smallest teams are three people. The biggest teams can be up to 12. If there's a lot of mobile, like end-to-end mobile back and front and data science and design in, kind of required in the area. So it depends a bit on the complexity of the problem. We optimize for as, as small teams as possible, really depending on what problem they're trying to solve. And uh, like just to imagine this, like, is a team then specific to backend or is it specific to a certain problem that a user is solving? I can imagine that it's kind of hard if you have front-end and backend, like front-end being your app and backend being, being I don't know, a Scala service that you like let one team, give it to one team and say, okay, you're owning this because there are a lot of dependencies on the left and on the right, right? Well, I think there's like there's like few models. I think for for this one, so so the teams, uh, the kind of feature teams, or so the main majority of our teams uh, are intern capable, so they can build the kind of for example the Scala backend, the React Native frontend, and and the kind of uh, whatever needed, maybe data, some analytics integrations on the side, and the team should be able to handle this. Like this is the idea that the team builds this model, but then of course you also have like supporting teams. So you have the typical horizontal layer of things. So we have platform teams or a developer experience team. A platform or infrastructure team, data platforms, performization, whose point is to basically enable this team to, teams to move as fast as possible and enable them to kind of uh, enable, enable them to own, own their own, own domain without having an endless amount of resources to actually solve every problem inside every team. Mm -hmm. So you have the enabling teams and you have the kind of like more impactful teams, but you try to have the kind of feature teams to be the, the, the majority of your teams. And the enabler teams are then like also setting like the generic, the general direction in, in tech, like which stack to use um, and how to actually make make the whole stack productive. Or, well, I mean, it's it's I, I, I still would kind of teams decide their own technology. So the whole idea is, is the team centricity in this regard. But what the central teams do is they build the support for certain technologies. So the whole idea is that you you provide supported technologies, so some things that are faster to develop with. For example, with us, it's the three major backend technologies we are building with. Uh, and the, and the idea idea is that if you want to leave away from that, you want to do something different in the teams, you have to have that understanding of the cost of your solutions. So if you want to go with Golang or, or Erlang or, or Rust, for example, for a new shiny microservice, you have to understand that you will not have the support for all the things. You will not have a login authentication libraries. You most likely won't have an eventual consistency library or these sort of things that, that we build to help you build, build, your, build your solution. So that accountability comes from understanding the whole, whole picture inside the team. So the kind of supporting team's idea is to really, really kind of build, build the best possible uh, products for their customers, which are the rest of the teams. So understanding what are the big blockers for them and how can they move faster. And then we build technology for them, mostly related to infrastructure, security, authentication, compliance, like GDPR, these sort of things that are kind of like, like not really things you want to solve as every team, every time. I want to have a platform level smartness in them. And do you have something like a tech radar 
where you put in like technologies that you want to use or you don't want to use because someone already had like a bad experience with them? We actually just made a made a <laughs> made a version of Attack Radar. We haven't made it public yet, but yeah, we are we are kind of and even that in the true vault fashion of being very collaborative and very ownership driven is a communal debate on what is on that. So it is not like management decided that these are the three technologies that you need to use. It is about understanding what are the things we need to do to be innovative and to win in the things we need to win. So and also to profit the from the experience of others, I guess, right? I mean, if someone already, let's say, tried Cassandra as a database uh, and you maybe were struggling with it, that you can learn from that or... Yeah, I mean, of, of course. I mean, like, that's just, I think, basics being smart. So standing on the shoulders of giants, learning learning from others, taking the in, in, kind of in, information that the industry has and, and being very curious about what, what helps us. Like, I mean, how we ended up in Kotlin at Vault was, for example, we used to have Python and Scala, mostly Python because it was the founding language of Vault and Scala because it had good bindings for C++ for our logistics optimization. And that was kind of how we, how we got to these two technologies. And as we scaled, we, uh, we had we had new needs, and mostly on the kind of financial front and a little bit on the merchant front. And the teams themselves came up with that hey, Kotlin would be a great, like more statically typed and kind of stronger, stronger type language that would, could be good for building this at scale without going with traditional Java, for being like mo both a bit more kind of more fun to work with and maybe better for future recruitment as well. But the teams came up with this. We made a pilot for a couple of for a while with the teams. And it was a great, great success. So now, like more than one third of Vault is Scotland, and more and more every day, I think. And it, this came from the teams themselves. We had the debates as we always do, and now we're happily, happily chugging along. This episode is proudly presented by Dell Technologies. They are a team of experts that helps you solving all your IT-related challenges and IT needs in your daily business and consult you in choosing the right end-to-end -end IT solutions or products. They offer IT technology solutions for companies of any size, tailored to their needs and have a huge product portfolio with IT solutions and know-how. They can help CTOs through providing end-to-end -end IT solutions, be it laptops, PCs, workstations, or server storage, cloud, and IoT solutions or financing. If you want to know more, please check the show notes to get a link. <laughs> so, um, very nice. Before we talk uh, more about like uh, how to build like performing engineering teams and how to actually measure um, the, 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 the output and outcome, um, I want to step back a little to the whole idea of having a company vision and like we, we spoke about your goal setup and, and OKRs essentially. Um, but I think like in a lot of companies, um, you, you have that setup that you maybe, I don't know, steer towards a certain goal for a quarter, but um, the vision for the, the, the company or your product is in a way distributed and no one really talks about it um, like you don't have it written down somewhere how do you do this do you have it written down somewhere or is it just like common knowledge that I don't know you want to be the best delivery company in the world or something like that I think a well, I mean, vision of course also uh, evolves over over time but I think we have a it's it's the way we it's like a written on a conference page or something it's more like in in the way we communicate so in every monthly call in the every every uh kind of roadmap refresh in everything where we communicate the bigger picture we always always go back to the same big theme so the big same big vision which we have at the moment so the, at the moment the, the vision from a more kind of like engineering and technical perspective is to kind of the delivery of everything so the mall in your pocket approach 
there's all like on a higher level it's making cities cities every city better and making cities more more fun and livable and how do we enable that through our through our technology from a more kind of product engineering perspective it's really about the like delivery of everything platform and how do how do we get there having started from food delivery as i think most in this industry have it's more about like you realize that you have a good use case you solve it for solve for it it's a really good business case as well for for food delivery and then you realize that you have this delivery mesh that you can make more and more efficient over time and then you add more use cases to it and realize retail is a great use case and and, and the more efficient that mesh is the better better your actual actual kind of a platform is and the more things you can build for your customers the cheaper you can do your deliveries the, the better earnings your couriers can have and the happier your merchants will be it's like everybody wins if you have the network efficiency at a at a high enough level, so this kind of this is very. I think this is very, something re- reinforced at every every level, and it also shows in the company goals and 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 the way we kind of look at them going forward. So they're kind of reflected on the on the on the goal setting. But the long term vision that vision takes a while. So if you did food delivery for four or five years to perfect it, going to deliver of everything, we're still in the early stages. I think every player in this industry is still in the early stages of of really cracking that. So we're in maybe like twenty two percent in. On being perfect in delivery of everything, twenty-two percent exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like randomly accurate metrics. So, <laughs> and how do you like you 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 communicate your vision and 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 changes to your vision in your monthly all hand meetings or how do you do that? I mean, how do you do onboarding, for example? Is that something where is it a process like a strict process where you? Also teach all those things and 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 uh, like give people the chance to understand it or yeah so I mean uh, yes actually nowadays we do so being growing so fast we've been trying to be more structured also in our onboarding but I think it's like as I mentioned like it is repeated in in all the kind of like bigger like where we bring everybody together as a company we're very big on kind of like talking about the things we do we're, we're very, not that good on writing everything down we're really good at kind of communicating as we as we go but uh for on, onboarding for example we have a kind of a information package about the culture the way we work the kind of values the way the, the kind of basics of the company we're very value driven as a company and how that goes but then we also link up for example the latest all hands on deck and the latest role wrapping Roma mapping as part of the onboarding process. So you go through the same narrative when you join the company of like, what are the biggest priorities right now? What are we building? Why are we building these things? What is the what is the long term view? Which is always re- re- repeated in this same same material. So it's part of your onboarding process to look at like who we are, why we are, how we build things, and what kind of what are we really aiming for, which is the vision part. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it is, I think, quite well nowadays. We actually used to have this feedback that uh, as a growing company, we grow really chaotic and too fast. It used to be that you know not enough materials and it's a bit chaotic to join. Now we get the feedback we have too much, too many things to read when you join the company, and too big checklists, and it's too complex. So we probably have to find a balance as always between these two. So, but at least we've over-indexed like, on the right things. It's it's uh, it's it's in waves. Like everything is in wave and tech, in waves and tech, right? Um, oh yes. Sometimes <laughs> steer over a bit and then you you slow down a bit more so um and i want to want to talk like about um the way you do product um and the way you focus i mean how does that work do you do product discovery in large scale do you believe in product discovery do you believe in intuition do you do you measure everything how does that like how do you decide on what to build 
Yeah, so I mean, maybe the overall approach as a, as a company, Vault has always been very data centric. So it's a very complex operational model to run. Like, if you run, want to run this efficiently, so like everything is measured in the company from from day one. We build a pretty good kind of uh, like uh, everything from a business metrics to efficiency metrics to the kind of uh, more customer journey side of things. So we have a lot of data in the company, but at the same time, as we come, we started with a kind of very intuition driven founders who almost this Apple-like belief in, in building perfection and what does it mean to kind of get, get things out of it. And I think it still shows in our culture. So it's a, it's a kind of mixture of things in this regard. So we do a lot of like, well, I mean, like the main point is getting max, maximum out of context. So we do get, we have the huge operational components. So we have a lot of feedback from the markets. Every market is different. We get a lot of like localized input for this. We do this impact mapping of those those inputs. So we do this massive kind of collection of input impact mapping, understanding what, what is that from a more structural perspective. So we get the kind of like operational input. Then we do user research. We do a lot of user research, uh, also competitor analysis, but not that much because we mostly focus on what is best for our customer groups. Customer groups being merchants, couriers, uh, consumers, all of these three in this three-way pl platform. Then we look at the data. So we've got user research data, uh, operational feedback, team feedback, and intuition. So maximizing the amount of input to understand what we need to really do. But intuition does play a part. I think you can't. I don't think you can build the, the best consumer experience in the world without having some some vision, some some part of uh, intuition in it. Because if you just if you just look at like output like input metrics and and kind of a uh, like the the output of your own analytics, for example, you get to a local maximum. What can you kind of iterate to perfection? But you won't get to the step change. And if you want to do step change, you need to have some uh, some kind of uh, some some set set of uh, kind of more visionary aspirations on this. Um, makes sense. And how big is the impact of intuition? Is it twenty two or thirty three percent? That's a good. I think that probably varies team by team. My personal personal stick is forty percent intuition, thirty percent data, and thirty percent user research. So you have qualitative, okay. quantitative, and then you have you. But this is my personal one. Teams have different aspect uh, approaches to this as well. Okay. And in a hyper growth company, how do you maintain? Or like, how do you build and how do you maintain a company culture like yours? I mean, you seem to be quite culture driven. Oh yes, oh yes, that is a, that's a good question. I think like when you're growing, like more than like more than half of your people are less than six months old. When you're growing super fast, always. So so a lot of it, as you also mentioned, like onboarding is one. But I think a culture has always been about like it's about how you work. Like it's not about what you write on the on the wall. You can have the best quote on the wall, but it's about how you really interact with each other. We have a lot of like reinforcing mechanisms for culture. So we we talk about our values, we celebrate our values. In every weekly call we do we do shout outs and we publicly read out about every shout out that people uh, submit to their whole company about according to our values. So according to us, one of our six values like excellence, then you have a shout out on excellence and it is actually just out loud read, read every day. So we do these common celebrations. We also do these similar things on, on yearly uh, anniversaries where you just get to gather feedback from around you just for giving you kind of good feedback about how amazing you are at that point when you've been here a year. So a lot of these kind of like, like recurring mechanisms that are done for culture, but also when we do look at like feedback from people, we look at culture as one of the lenses. So the values is one of the lenses when we look at for, pe for people to give, give, give feedback for uh, like how, how are you doing and what, what you need to improve upon. And we do a continuous feedback. So we do a continuous uh, rounds of feedback rather than trying to emphasize like once a year setup for doing feedback, especially in the kind of product and engineering space. 
So that's a couple of examples, but it's it's a it's a lot of just like reinforcing in the act of how you work, how you solve problems. I mentioned the team ownership is one of those like the high ownership teams, how they aim to aim to kind of really have this ownership and accountability and this excellence in the teams themselves. Those come from our values as well. So they're all kind of aligned on on the whole cultural aspect. So over-indexing on culture rather than process is something we're very big on and distributed ownership from that. So I think it kind of uh, feeds on itself. And are you a remote first company or are you are you mostly local and in and, and offices? Yeah, so so we were local in offices before COVID hit, as I think most people were. But I, th I think quite fast after that, we realized that we wanted to go with where the, where we can get the best talent and how can we move move first. So we we support uh, remote for remote first approaches. So you can decide how you work. Do you work in in five different countries at the moment in product engineering? You can work in, in Germany, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Finland, and Estonia. You can work from an office. You can work from home. You can work partially from office, partially from home, and we will support you in whatever setup you wish. Then we fly people around to after COVID, especially what if after COVID ever exists. But the idea is to is to <laughs> at, at least uh, kind of have have the culture aspect of getting together and uh, and actually building trust uh, face to face when possible. And, and how often do you do that? Well, we have this guideline that we would want to do it tw uh, two weeks per quarter for everyone. So it really depends oh. on on. The, but that's a, that, and that's what what's a kind of budget that I set at the moment. So it's quite a lot. But the whole idea is we're very culture driven as a company and want to kind of like you put culture is actions. If you don't do the actions, you don't really have the culture. But we, of course, due to Omicron and due to the COVID situation, we're very wary of this. So it's uh, it's all voluntary, and we're trying figuring out as every other uh, other company is at this point and how it goes continuing. Personally, really hope we can get back to this uh, more bigger bigger events and building culture together. We used to do this product last week, for example, or used to. We did one last autumn when COVID was a little bit, little bit easier, where we flew everybody to Helsinki and just had like a week of uh, workshopping together and and having some parties and kind of building better things and culture, just to kind of uh, understand each other better. And do you always try to get people to Helsinki then, or do you also, I don't know, move to Barcelona every once in a while <laughs> or something like that? No, I mean, this one was in Helsinki because it was easiest to organize based on the, how many people wanted to travel and what was the kind of, because it was voluntary, of course, due to COVID. Uh, I think we're, we're going to do them uh, where, where it's easiest and where, it's, where we have the most people. Berlin is probably the one we're going to have the next one, but it really depends on what we want to do. It's, it's not set in, in, in a place. It's set mostly on, on time and, and where, where can we get people easiest. Right now, it's a pretty even split between Berlin and Helsinki for most of the people in, in, in uh, Rotten Engineering. Okay, so that that sounds like an um, really like an aspirational culture you're building there. How can you make sure that like in a, in a very friendly environment? Um, how can you make sure that like people still perform? That like um, people are still effective and and the organization is running efficiently. Like how do you like do you measure the output of engineering teams? Um, how do you yeah. weight it? Yeah, so I mean, kind of, I guess there's a there's a couple of things to that. I, like, uh, I think the way you way you uh, kind of in a larger scale kind of ensure the excellence continuing forward is that you you hire amazing people, and and when you give them the freedom to build things, like amazing people tend to know when people around them aren't amazing. So you get a lot of feedback if people aren't really kind of working working as well as they should. So for example, if a team's team would wouldn't be kind of. Uh, Uh, working working super well we have a very big feedback culture so we get 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 the feedback from that so i think it's 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 a 
I think that isn't really a, a, a problem as such. But if you look at like more kind of this productivity of Teams side, we look at kind of output. So what do Teams really ship? So we look at the kind of output of Teams and, and, and rather than the input metrics. So are they creating impact? Are we solving the right problems? How, how, how well are we kind of matching the needs of our customers is one way of looking at it. Then you can look more into this... Uh, this kind of uh, like engineering performance, but then it's really not about like it's really hard to measure performance in a in a complex space such as engineering. We are piloting actually this approach where we're trying to look at it through three different axes, kind of giving teams themselves a better kind of better set of tools to understand their their efficiency, their performance, their operational excellence. And that is a combination of things like one of the best industry standard, not industry standard, but one of the best known ways of uh, understanding how good engineering teams are, and what correlates to that is engineering satisfaction. Engineering satisfaction to their tools, to their setup, to their to their kind of product processes. So we track that. We track the quarterly actually, where we kind of track how how well are we comparing to like, with the trends on are we are we happy with the with the kind of support structures and solutions we have. And then we look at operational excellence, which is mostly DORA metrics and accelerate metrics. So so how do we look, look at the, like how, how fast we do like cycle time, how fast we ship into production, or how many defects are there? The kind of pump, the operational pump of uh, of release in teams. And then we look at this invent, in, uh, investment kind of categories. So trying to figure out where do we really spend the time. And that's what, that's what my personal favorite at the moment, trying to kind of roll it out, of course, over the organization. So this, like, how do, do we, how much time do we spend on toils, on, on the things we must do to keep the platform up and running? How much do we spend on improving existing products? How much, how much do we spend on building new products? And how, do we, how much do we spend on improving or reducing the amount of toil? And these four axes kind of gives you an understanding of where a very high level understanding of how, how kind of is the team, how much technical debt does the team have, and how how are they really functioning. But this is something we're piloting at the moment and figuring out if if, if there's a, enough gains in in rolling this out across the organization. I personally believe there's a as your organization gets big enough, there's there's a lot of benefit in starting to look more more abstractly at the at, at the kind of uh, the ways of excellence and and efficiency in teams. But there is no single metric you can look at for something as complex as engineering. And um, if you now had like a blank sheet of paper in front of you, um, and I would effectively, I, I want to do like, uh, I, I, I have a topic where I could start like a hyper growth company. Um, and maybe I already have 20 engineers what would be like the three top tips you would give me um, or recommendations you would give me for my career um, to get started? Like what should I execute first? Where, what should I, where should I start? Um, should I start measuring the performance of my engineering teams first? I know that it's a hard question, but what, what what should I what what you do what you do first? Work on culture, maybe. <laughs> so I think you think of like like early stage or like you kind of you is this like before product market fit or around product market fit for your teams? Like what is is it like more about scaling or finding product market fit? It's, it's more a... about scaling. It's more about scaling. Okay, so if you found the product market fit and you have that kind of initial initial kind of validation that this this makes sense and you want to go for that blitz scaling path, I think kind of a. I think a culture is. I mean, I, I would. I would start with context for the develop. Like if you want to be the best tech, technical organization, so engineering organization, I would start with like how do you get the engineers to be as vested as possible in what they're trying to build. So how, how do you kind of like reduce all blockers in, in between the kind of like the problems, the people you're really trying to solve the problems for, and the problems and the engineering, and I, whether it's cultural or process or whatever way to kind of solve this, but start with this kind of very product oriented, very kind of 
trying to kind of have the kind of key understanding for the people building it. So you're building the culture from the more from the perspective of who you're building it for as you're scaling, because that's the thing that sticks when you scale. How do you, who do you solve problems for? Like, you're, you're not pro, like in engineering, for example, it's easy to solve like things for engineering. Like you just want to build the best engineering in, on its own. And that means nothing when you're trying to do a growth company. Your growth company needs to win and the market is always competitive and you need to do the best solutions for your customers. So having that like really that customer and product centricity is something that I would I would instill in the beginning. It, I would do it with more cultural ways. You can do it with more process ways, but but I would do it with more cultural ways, through, through values, through the ways of working, through the through people who you hire, how you set the right bar for who you hire, and how do you look at this kind of from from this kind of whole whole cultural perspective. The other part I would do in the beginning in engineering is the craft excellence side. So making sure that the bar is just really high when you hire people. Because when you when you're growing a company super fast, the initial people are the ones who are championing the, your your ways of working and your future to the future people. So even though you should always have the bar high, the first twenty people should be absolutely amazing, because those people will define for your next four hundred people what amazing means. And I think that's that's one of those things that you you kind of just that's something we did both, both I think like really well and we were really strict on who we hire and we still are but because the whole model of empowered and ownership driven teams is that you need to be able to trust the teams to be able to execute so they need to be of really high caliber otherwise it doesn't really you know, it doesn't really work so this kind of like excellence is a part of it so customer centricity and context first uh, craft excellence second and uh, and third a lot of funding. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so you can run as fast as possible. So that that kind of I think I think that that would, that would probably be a good good start, starting point. And, but no, I would um, not start like I don't think you should me- you don't need to measure anything from a performance of teams or anything like this. You should measure your outputs and are you are you actually helping your customer? Are you solving the right problems in the beginning? And how can you move as fast as possible in in doing so? That's that's where you should start from. That's where the impact get comes from. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm a very kind of like product and consumer oriented engineering leader. So it's kind of a, a craft excellence matters, but number one is always the value we're creating to our to our customers. And how do we get there? And not not to each other, not to another manager, somebody else. Managers don't matter. What matters is the customer value you're creating. Everything else is secondary. So understand the customer first is like your your best and biggest advice um i'm putting on, it next to the engineers so every engineer should understand it like, like it's really about like getting getting the tech teams to understand this yeah. having the context in the teams i can't overemphasize this enough <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Magic. so it all it all would start with a vision again right so you yes. in a way look like try to to make everyone understand the vision or like maybe even like build like a uh, write down the vision together, maybe, um, and 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 then, like, really make sure that the customers understood uh, and the craft excellence part. Like, how do you how do you make sure that you hire the right people? I mean, do you do like how does your 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 process look like? Your your hiring process look like? So I think there's there's like, like two three things in in this this regard. Like one is that you don't want to make a process that is like. Uh, it's too too uh, long because you're, if you're blitz scaling, you need to get the you need to kind of actually manage the the time efforts also put into recruiting. So what we looked at, for example, what was this uh, like? What is the minimum viable way of evaluating like people to be as excellent as they can be? And and, and that's the approach. And and the other other principle we have, and I, which I fully believe in, which is that the interview process should be similar to actually working in the company. 
So it is not an evaluation process where you're alienating people and being from up high telling you something. It should be if you're a collaborative ownership first company, it should be a collaborative ownership first process. What we do is we, we do a typical three major steps. So we do a kind of, well, this is a screening call and typical kind of the recruiter first, first starting points. But we have an, a kind of a first interview, which is a mixture of kind of leadership, cultural evaluation, uh, kind of uh, this kind of more general discussion. A lot of like also telling about us, like understanding what, what, why, why Vault matters and what, what does it mean to be us. And also evaluating the kind of like ownership, kind of this ownership aspect and how do you look at, look at your, your work and at the cultural alignment. Then you have a technical interview, which is typically kind of working on a problem together. Typically, we do a home task. So a home task for engineers is the one thing that kind of is really hard to bypass because you need to look at code to understand if somebody is good at engineering. So you can be good at talking about engineering, but if you don't look at code and have some referable way of kind of looking at it, it just kind of doesn't really work. And we've had really weird things where we have like some senior architects or really experienced people who fail our technical kind of exam. And it's not a hard exam. We're not looking for any kind of, you know, Google superstar. We're looking for people who can really just understand how to solve problems with code. And that's it. But it is essential to have some code to look at. But the technical interview, same thing. It's very pleasant. It's much about kind of discussing together, like solving a problem together, how it would be when you'd be working for us, you know. Here's a problem with, I don't know, daylight savings time, some other annoying tidbit issue that you need to solve. And then you work on it together. And, and you just kind of try to solve it in a collaborative sense. And that's so the way we try to like a, teamwork. Yeah. Is it a bigger a bigger team effort then, uh, that, that, that interview? Or... Well, I mean, we try to always involve people from the teams you will be going for. So there's the, like the, the, we will meet your future team members also on this process. So it's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's. But typically, you want to have like two people and, and an interviewee because otherwise, it's the dynamic is a bit bit off on an interview. If you have like seven people from your side and one interviewee, it's a bit of a panel that is a bit intimidating. So typically, it's a few people from our side per interview. After that, there's typically a final interview, but that's like the, just the more the last step on the on the process. Technical side is, I think, the biggest one if you're hiring engineers, like because you also value evaluate a lot of culture in the technical step. So when you do technical yeah. evaluation, you also evaluate a lot about how they pro solve problems, how do they work together, how do they face challenges. When somebody is giving them critique, how do they respond to this? How can they kind of uh, find these ways forward? So. I also think that is a huge chance for the candidate, actually, right? Um, you you let them interact with with your real future team. I mean, the the worst experience starting a new job is you you have the first day and you just realize, okay, this is not working out. <laughs> my my team is shit. This job is shit. <laughs> the the tech stack is shit, and so on. So um, it's it's a good chance, right? Oh yes, oh yes. I think it's always. I mean, all interview processes are both ways. So you're, you're, the, the candidate is evaluating the company and you're evaluating the candidate. So it should always go both ways. You just also understand that it's not like you're, you're, you're some king in a castle waiting for somebody to come to you. You're working together on a problem and you're trying to evaluate each other on, along the way. And meeting the team is very important from the team perspective. The team needs to have buy-in that this is the person I want to work with. The same as for the person on the other side. It's very human-centric in the end. But at the same time, you need to evaluate the kind of hard skills so that you actually get the great people. Okay, um, so I'm I'm coming to my 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 uh, outro questions already. Um, so we already spent like almost an hour together. Um, you're more of a book person still. I decided to ask you for a crazy tool that right now makes your day. I mean, something that makes you more efficient. It could also be like a a tool you just use for yourself, like not a technical tool, but um, it, 
like a like uh, a methodology you 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 adopted and you you feel more productive with it. What what is it? Well, I think I, I, <laughs> as nowadays I mostly do hand waving instead of technical work because there's a big organization to run. Not that many technical tools nowadays. I think the one thing that I, I actually just use I use to do lists a lot. So I do I use to do list. And that's my favorite tool at the moment because I, I, I because there's so much context, there's so many work streams going at the same time. So I make I make uh, holistic to do lists of everything, and then then I time them and put them on some time schedule. And then I every every time I get get back to them, I either postpone them or solve them. And it's I think it's it's one of those kind of you run out of buffer when you have enough, like too wide a context at some point as a person. You run out of buffer, so you want you need to make a, a queue solution. Uh, and, you, and the queue solution can be whatever. It can be a notes. It can be whatever. You can, you can. There are many different tools in, in this productivity category. But the main point is having a queue where you can offload your thoughts and then get back to them. And there's, that's I've tried many different things. And this open source tool called, tool called Dendron that was overly complex and and wonderful because you could develop it like like a, like a programmer. But but uh, in the end, I figured something simple is, is enough for this. But yeah, it I mean, also comes, it, it also comes in waves, waves, right? To-do lists also come in waves and productivity also comes in waves, right? I, I yep. remember me like trying GTD a while ago uh, and then like, I don't know, going through my to-do list every day and stuff like that where, where like half of my day was spent on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went went away from to-do lists for a couple of years, I think. And I was I, and I was just, I used personal Jira projects. I tried different sort of tooling and I was like, or writing documents or also to, or using calendar to be like holistically the place where you put some like some notes. But nothing really like, like really, I, I like a simple to-do list that has like a good scheduling functionality. That that is enough. I mean, there's tons of methodology, but it's really most about like, how do you how do you manage your time and your focus, and that's in, in a more kind of like at least more leadership roles because you tend to have a really wide context. There's too many work streams that you need to follow, so you need to have have some way of kind of offloading content from your brain. This is the way I look at it, but it's very personal. I'm sure everybody has their own tricks, tips, and tricks to be more productive. I I guess so too. Yeah. Um. I I recently like discovered focus time and tried to really block a lot of my time in my calendar. Um. Which, which is urgently needed. I, I, I love focus time. Unfortunately, somebody always books on top of it. So <laughs> it's like a free form. It's like free for all time at the moment. But it is a, it is a good one as well. So um, then I still have a little surprise for you. So uh, Miki Kuzi, uh, one of your co-founders of, of, of Vault, um, actually told me about a, a hidden uh, feature that he he built into the, the Vault app at a very early time. It's actually your... You have to hit like a, a certain icon for six times, and then you unlock um, a feature, an Easter egg in the time picker, um, like when to deliver food, so that you can actually select a time in the past um, and just travel to that time. Um, and uh, instead of ordering a pizza, um, we now try to travel uh, to this day six years ago. Um, we we pick the time and just just travel there and observe yourself for 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 a while your your younger self for a while, and uh, now you have the chance to whisper something into into your younger self's ears. What would it be? <laughs> oh man, oh man, this <laughs> that's a tough question. What would I whisper to my younger self's ears? I don't know. Probably, probably, I, I would probably whisper that you don't have to take everything so seriously. You, you know, things have a t have a tendency to go kind of uh, get be all right. It, it, we had a lot of bumps on the on the road for for Volt, 
from those early days onwards, as every growth company has, where you're kind of almost running out of funding and there are all sorts of tough situations along the way. And I think it's like, like one of the things that you learn along the way, I think, is just that there's always there's always burning fires. There's always chaos. In, in a growth company, nothing is ever clear. Everything is a bit chaotic. And if you try to make too much sense of the chaos, you'll probably just go mad. So you need to find a balance of how do you how do you balance kind of this uh, this uncertainty and how do you... And I think I would probably just be like, you know, it, it's going to be okay. You know, you just enjoy the ride. That's what I would tell myself. Because it's a wonderful ride. I can imagine. Um, so um, thanks a lot for your time today. Um, it was really a pleasure talking to you and um, like great insights that you that you gave, Nilo. Uh, I hope we have the chance in the future uh, to, to uh, like elaborate a bit more on Vault. <laughs> and I wish you guys uh, like big success. Uh, I mean, you already have big success, uh, but but continue to grow and and have a lot of fun on the way. Thank you, thank you. It was wonderful to be here. And remember, if you're especially in Berlin and you kind of want to want to join a great tech company, where we're hiring a lot of people, come join us. <laughs> Talk to <laughs> my shameless self promotion, <laughs> isn't this like the way to go? <laughs> That's how it goes. Thanks a lot, Nilo. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the AlphaList podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.